What number is this, Chip? Zilch123. It's time for Monkeys 101. This episode, Royal Flush. <laughs> okay, don't, mean, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short. Zilch. 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 You're listening to Zilch, a Monkeys podcast. your podcast full of monkeys i'm ken mills one of your hosts here today today is september 12th that's right all those years ago the monkeys tv show debuted on nbc and in honor of that happy global monkeys day hi mickey dolan's here i want to thank all of our fans that have been with us since the beginning and the newer fans who have recently found our music and our tv show and welcome to global monkeys day in honor of the anniversary of the debut of the Monkees TV show, our friends over at the official Davy Jones Facebook page have created a cool virtual event known as Global Monkees Day. There will be a link in our show notes. Go join in and see all the cool content Monkees fans from around the globe are posting. We at Zilch are joining in by bringing you the first installment of our new feature, Monkees 101. That's right, Monkees 101 in which our two doctors, Dr. Roseanne Welsh and Dr. Sarah Clark, are going to do a scholarly yet fun study of the monkeys and their meaning in pop culture. Today, we're going to look at the first monkeys episode, Royal Flush. So without further ado, you can hear the school bells ringing. It's time for school and Monkeys 101. Class! Class! It's Monkeys 101! Here at Zilch, a Monkeys podcast, we're big fans of education. But as Zilch Nation grows, there's also a growing number of fans who don't know their Frodus from their Freebill Energizer, or who've forgotten the departure time for last train to Clarksville. There are even people in this world who can't solve the equation nine times blue. Oh, but have no fear, because doctors Roseanne Welch and Sarah Clark are here to help with their new series, Monkeys 101. Their regular class sessions and symposiums on special topics will explore all things monkeys, from the deeper meanings of the TV show and music we all know and love, to the cultural impact of the monkeys from 1966 all the way to the present. We'll even explore the monkeys' connections to history then and now. Stay tuned for a fun, thoughtful romp through the world of the monkeys. And who knows? At the end of the episode, you just might be thinking about the monkeys in a different, deeper way. Hi, and welcome back to Zilch. I'm Dr. Sarah Clark. I don't go by that a lot here on Zilch, but I am a real doctor. I am playing one on this podcast, and I did write my own thesis. Thank you very much. Joining me is my fellow overeducated fan, author of Why the Monkeys Matter, and co-host of Monkeys 101, Dr. Roseanne Welch. 
Hey, everybody. Hey, Sarah. This is so much fun. I can't stand it. I've been dying to talk about the monkeys deeply with someone else who's as interested as I am. Oh, I know. This has been one of my little hopes really ever since the first time we had you on Zilch. And I think the first question we ought to answer for folks is, what is Monkeys 101? I agree. It's not exactly a class. It's certainly not a lecture. It's um, what do you think it is? Well, I think it's a look at the monkeys and their impact on pop culture through the lens of two PhDs who know a lot about both. Um, I, I do want to mention that most episodes will like be tied into the TV show and the songs that were featured on the TV show. But we also wanted to go um, deeper uh, because the the TV show really is just kind of the, the, the jumping off point for the monkeys. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, definitely. I mean, for me, it's it's the thing that brought them to us. Mm -hmm. And so it is deeply important, but they became so much more. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we're we're still having reunions 52 years on. I mean, we just recently had um the uh what we've been calling the the M&M show, the Mike and Mickey <laughs> tours and um we'll be hopefully having a few more of those in the spring and it's even in 2018, they are still relevant in pop culture. I hear jokes about them on, on other TV shows. People make references. You can still hear. We were at uh, we were at dinner last night. We heard the monkeys theme on the radio in the restaurant. I mean, it's just it's amazing that we're still having these conversations. Oh, of course. We do a thing on our um, Alexa unit, not to make an ad or anything, but they um, they do a thing called song quiz. They do many little game shows on it. And one mm -hmm. is song quiz and you can you get snippets of songs and you name them and the artist. And of course, if you play the 1960s, they most certainly will play you some snippets of monkey songs. And my friends always look to me when they hear one start and it's my turn to answer. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I get that a lot, too. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, on today's episode, we're actually going to start out discussing the first episode of the Monkees TV show, Royal Flush. To summarize the episode, Royal Flush is the Emmy-winning first episode of the Monkees, written by Robert Schlitt and Peter Meyerson, and directed by the soon-to-be-ubiquitous James Frawley. The episode, and the series, opens with a shot of a lovely young blonde woman in a blue swimsuit, played by Katherine Walsh, who got the bright idea to go swimming in the Pacific Ocean with a rather underinflated-looking air mattress. <laughs> we soon discover that this shot is actually the point of view of 20-year-old Davy Jones in red short shorts and a jacket over his bare, utterly hairless chest, lounging <laughs> on the beach in all his teen idol glory. With male gaze and female gaze both nicely satisfied, it's time to kick off the plot. A vaguely European noble, Archduke Otto, played by Theo Marcuse, comes skulking down the beach with his chauffeur henchman Sigmund, played by Richard Beck. It soon becomes clear that the woefully undersized air mattress was sabotaged. <laughs> Ah! 
as the young lady is unable to swim in what looks like about three feet of water, Davy jumps in to save her. When he helps her to shore, we learn that she is Princess Bettina of Harmonica. Otto is her uncle, and apparently next in line for the throne if she dies, and that the whole thing is an assassination attempt. After the opening credits, we meet Davy's three roommates and bandmates, Mickey, Peter, and Mike, who live together in an implausibly large beachfront house for guys who are complaining about being perpetually broke. After Mickey delivers some exposition from the newspaper, the guys head off to the Ritz Swank Hotel to talk to Bettina in an encounter that seemed quite gallant in 1966, but would probably get you a restraining order in 2018. It says she's staying at the Ritz Swank Hotel. Come on, fellas, we've got to go. Hey, wait a minute, you can't go there. Look, they're trying to kill her. How do you know? Look, I know, I know. The guy threatened to kill me, too. What did he say? They said, Oyanka Kimbo Kuomba Kumasini. <laughs> what in the world does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean live and be well. Oh. Davey, look, man. You cannot go down to the Ritz Swank Hotel and barge in there on a suspicion. Look, will you trust me? She's got my jacket. Oh, well, she's got your jacket. Yeah. She's got his jacket. She's got his jacket. After the four guys who couldn't even afford groceries a few minutes before managed to reserve and monogram the adjoining room with Mike posing as rich Texas tycoon W.H. Wolf hat, insert liquid paper joke here, <laughs> and dispensing stock tips to the housekeeper, played by the underrated Seal Cabot, they record Archduke Otto helpfully detailing every point of the plan to kill the princess. I'm still a little fuzzy as to why they didn't poison her back in Harmonica, where Otto could have presumably hushed up the whole thing, but hey, narrative causality is one of the strongest forces in the monkey's universe. <laughs> After luring Archduke Otto away from the royal suite to shop thrones in their room, Davy attempts to find the princess and play the tape for her. After several minutes of throne shopping hijinks and tape recorder malfunctions, Davy plays the evidence for Princess Bettina. But do they hail a cab and head straight for the State Department consular office in L.A. to see if the U.S. government will protect a royal from a presumably friendly European country for a few hours until her 18th birthday at midnight to stave off a coup? No! <laughs> Act 2 opens with Bettina walking in broad daylight with the guy who saved her from the last assassination attempt at the same beach as the last assassination attempt, where we learn that Bettina is a good princess who cares about her family but didn't learn a darned thing from her uncle about political scheming, though in fairness he ain't the brightest bulb in the box either. After Davy picks being pop star royalty over the chance to be, you know, Royalty, royalty. Evil but dumb chauffeur Sigmund finds the guys exactly where he expected they would be, and a romp ensues to This Just Doesn't Seem to Be My Day, replaced in reruns by You Told Me, and then Apples, Peaches, Bananas, and Pears. Shockingly, two and a half minutes of Davy and Bettina making goo-goo eyes, Mickey and Sigmund chasing each other around the beach, and Peter digging a whole hole doesn't deter our villains, who take Bettina back to the reception under the threat of killing the monkeys, who Sigmund is holding hostage. Fortunately, as we will soon learn in a plethora of episodes where one or more monkeys are held hostage by dumb henchmen, a kidnapping is rarely much more than a narrative speed bump. Now we cut to the reception, where Archduke Otto immediately spies the now-freed monkeys walking into the room, whose fluted pilasters will soon become all too familiar in backgrounds over the next two years. 
Davy, but a quick change into Errol Flynn garb is all it takes to buckle some swatch in the hilarious and surreal romp to take a giant step, replaced in reruns by Girl I Knew Somewhere, and later Good Clean Fun. After some running gags with an oblivious couple shoving cakes, cake into each other's faces and Otto seemingly battling Davy into submission, the ploy works. Peter calls for the time ask your parents, kids, to prove that it is midnight and Princess Betweena is now queen of harmonica. Otto apparently instantaneously lost his diplomatic immunity and can now be arrested, and in the tag we learn that the chambermaid is now a tycoon in her own right. Thus we come to the end of the Emmy-winning Monkeys episode Royal Flush with a happy ending and a return to status quo ante for our heroes. The morals of today's story... Do look a gift raft in the mouth if it's from the next in line to your throne and buy International Steel at 28 and a half. (laughs) (laughs) And this is one of the episodes that actually has been discussed previously on Zilch on the Colorcast commentary. And if you want a real blow by the of the episode, I really suggest that folks go back to that episode, which will be linked in the show notes as always. Turning from the episode summary... We decided we wanted to take a look, as we talked about these episodes, at what was going on in history during the week that a particular episode aired. And y'all will be delighted to know that all of the This Day in History lists I consulted included the premiere of The Monkees as worthy of inclusion on September 12th, 1966. How wonderful is that? I know, that was delightful and tells you (laughs) right there about their culture impact now, doesn't it? Hey, hey, see, we're not the only people who know about these things. Exactly. And they were joined on that day by the first episode of Family Affair, which I don't think I knew. Really? Well, Uh you knew the show. You didn't know that it aired the same day. Correct. Correct. And some band from Liverpool earned a gold record that day. I I think the tune was called Yellow Submarine or something like that. (laughs) Whatever came of those guys. But some other interesting events from that week include the Gemini 11 uh, space mission. Astronauts Charles Pete Conrad Jr. and Richard F. Gordon Jr. performed the first ever direct ascent rendezvous with an Agena target vehicle, docking with it in one hour and 34 minutes after launch, used the rocket engine to achieve a world record high apogee Earth orbit, and also created a small amount of artificial gravity by spinning the two spacecraft connected by a tether. Uh, Gordon also performed two spacewalks for a total of two hours and 41 minutes. Uh, on September 13th, Johannes Balthazar Vorster sworn, was sworn in as premier of South Africa. Um, on September 14th, Tilly Edelstein, um, actress and screenwriter, died. As Gertrude Berg, she created The Goldbergs, a radio program that later became the first television sitcom. Now, Roseanne, wow. I'd never heard of this. Oh, The Goldbergs are huge in that world of early, early TV. I mm-hmm. mean, we think of The Monkees as early TV, but the 50s is when shows started. And in fact, Gertrude, the, the Goldbergs was the first show focused on an ethnic family, being that they were a Jewish family. Um, my favorite itty bitty story about Jewish characters on TV is Jim Bacchus, who you'll all remember from the Gilligan's Island. Oh, yeah. 
He started on a radio show called I Married Joan, which became a TV show. And at one point, he asked the writers of the show, who all happened to be Jewish, um, were Joan and he, the characters, Jewish. And Jim Bacchus actually was Jewish. And the writer said, oh, no, 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 not at all. America's not ready for, you know, too many Jewish characters on TV. So then Jim Bacchus said, well, then why do we always eat Jewish food, like lox and bagels and things? And so they hired a Catholic guy as a writer on the show to write the food. <laughs> and I always thought that was a joke um, until I noticed an episode of Dick Van Dyke, who, of course, Dick, you know, um, Rick, excuse me, Rob was the most basic American non-ethnic guy. Yeah. And it was his birthday. And um, Laura brought him his favorite breakfast in bed, which was bagels and lox, <laughs> which as a kid in Cleveland in an Italian neighborhood, I had never heard of. Yeah. <laughs> So there you go. So yes, the Goldbergs are very huge and that she was a female in early television writing and starring in her own show is a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And I know you've done a lot of work on females in uh, television and movies, especially in the early years. So One of my favorite focuses. Absolutely. So some other interesting things that happened that week. On the 15th, the first British nuclear ballistic missile submarine, HMS Resolution, launched. And U.S. President Lyndon Johnson, responding to a sniper attack at the University of Texas at Austin, writes a letter to the United States Congress urging the enactment of gun control legislation. Wow. Um, I know. I was like, okay, wow. that resonates. And we're still having that conversation 52 years later. Exactly. That's really amazing. I know. I, that surprised me. And on September 16th, the Metropolitan Opera opened its new opera house at Lincoln Center, debuting Samuel Barber's opera, Antony and Cleopatra, and in South Vietnam, Buddhist monk and activist against both the South and North uh, Vietnamese governments, uh, Tich Tri Quang, ends a 100-day hunger strike. Oh, and on September 17th, Mission Impossible premiered on CBS. How <laughs> funny that. And look at how Mission Impossible has been rebooted in the film world and is still something the kids today know about. Yeah, I think we're getting another one this summer, if I remember right. So I think you're right. That's yep. crazy. Yep. So, Roseanne, you offered to take sort of a deep dive into some of the interesting themes that were going on in this episode. Yes. And I think, um, as I did in the book, it's all about, for me, the ideologies that are being passed on to the viewers and the things that people who were in the censorship business might not have noticed. Although in this episode, we don't have a lot of political stuff yet. Mm -hmm. um, but I noted um, in watching all the episodes how much of a feminist bent the show had. And people think, oh, no, four, you know, rock and roll band guys must be as bad as the four guys in Big Bang Theory who are all about who's my girlfriend this week. But the boys actually always encountered women who were of substance, girls who had jobs and cared about what was going on in the world. And so it's important to me that they started with Royal Flush, since we know this wasn't the first one they filmed, but they chose to air this one first uh, for reasons we'll talk about in a minute as well. Other parts of it that are so true to what they wanted the show to be. But in the case of Princess Bettina, we have a woman who has the ultimate job, just like Princess, well, Queen Elizabeth by that point. Mm -hmm. Um 
And the idea that she's in charge of a country, that they're allowing an 18-year-old girl. It's a little bit like that young Victoria show that's on right now um, with Clara from Doctor Who, uh, which is wonderful, Jenna Coleman. Um, But a young woman being given control of an entire country. So, yes, this is a sitcom and it's all cute and funny. But the idea that Bettina turns down a life with teen idol Davy Jones, which not too many other girls would do, for um, serving the duty she owes to her country is a big message for little girls watching the show. Mm-hmm. So that strikes me. Then also in a, a feminist twist or twisting the trope of how women are always getting kidnapped on TV shows. Doesn't that make you nuts? Yes, yeah, dressing bonkers. Ah, lively lady cops are always getting, I'm like, really, this wouldn't happen. There was mm-hmm. one show out of um, Australia that I've been watching where the woman cop got kidnapped but thankfully she kicked the guy in places one shouldn't kick uh, and got out of it and I was like yes thank you that's what you would do you don't walk out anyway mm-hmm. so in this case the boys as we know get kidnapped and Bettina has to go listen to her uncle or they will be hurt as opposed to flipping the plot and having a girl be kidnapped mm-hmm. so I thought that was an interesting twist on the show that it's up to her to save them by her actions so we have a lot of feminist stuff going on but also if you look at the props and the back in the boys very expensive home you do notice um, what is in almost every shot um, whenever there's a close-up um, and it's that poster that um, hand what's the word I want not knitted but cross stitch cross stitch thank you because I don't do those cool things um, cross stitch that says money is the root of all evil mm-hmm. and that's a hippie message from the start very true I think that's really, really cool. And also, you get the idea that there's a dedication to being about something. If Davy marries Bettina, he becomes a king and he gets all the money in the world. But his goal in life is to make music with his friends, music Mm -hmm. that as we follow the show through, we'll find is about something. Again, it's about substance. They want to put a message out into the world. And that's really what, again, the hippie ideology was all about. Yeah, very true. And I thought there was some interesting um, resonances, as as you talked a little bit about between um, uh, between Princess Bettina and real world princesses at the time. In fact, the monkeys during their tour in the UK had a bit of an encounter with Princess Margaret, as you yes. mentioned. Yes. Oh, yes. And everyone who knows them pretty much knows the story. It gets repeated in um, We Love the Monkeys, which was the English documentary that was made about them after Davy passed away. But um, Princess Margaret is the one who sent a letter to the hotel when all their fans were out there on their first tour and screaming and shouting. And, you know, Mickey parses the letter and who knows what it really said. But along the lines of, could one keep one's fans quiet, please? The ear-splitting monkey sisterhood even triggered a regal reprimand. The producers got a royal note from Princess Margaret, who was living at the Kensington Palace. Could one keep one's fans quiet <laughs> or something like that? <laughs> one cannot sleep. Nope. Sorry, Maggie. <laughs> Can't do it. <laughs> so Princess Margaret was aware of their existence. Um, she herself was a very um, fancy princess and that she dated. She had that lost love affair with the gentleman who she couldn't marry because he was divorced. Yep. Then she eventually married the commoner who was the photographer who she met. Mm-hmm. So that was a huge sort of, ooh, princesses in the news bit. And that actually happened in 1960 is their wedding. Um, but we also know that at that time, um, it was only 10 years. If we premiere the show, The Monkees, in 1966, in 1956, Princess Grace married Prince Rainier. And mm. that was the ultimate, you know, gorgeous, normal woman becomes princess story. Yep. Yep. 
And and it was actually funny rewatching that uh, bit of the documentary that you sent me as well, because I had just recently finished watching season two of The Crown, and uh, there's ah. actually a bit in there where Margaret's neighbors were complaining about her making noise. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, she held parties all the time. Yep, exactly. I'm here to ask that on your way to building this great, bright, modern egalitarian home for your growing family, you might have a little more consideration for your neighbours. In terms of what? I'm assuming noise and general disruption. Oh, I see. And who sent you on this ugly little mission? Marina? Yes. She'd do well to remember her place. As a low-ranking member of your husband's refugee family, she's lucky to be here at all. I rest my case about egalitarian. And in fact, if you want some companion viewing to Royal Flush, I also agree with uh, Young Victoria. And season two of The Crown is a fun pick, uh, even though it actually ends slightly before this series was set in 1963. Plus, it's just a fun show. Oh, it's quite good. And of course, Matt Smith from Doctor Who. So we're crossing Doctor Who and Monkeys fandom. Again. Always good. And I would, if you're going to add viewing to people's lists, if they haven't seen Roman Holiday, oh, good they heavens, really yes. must. Because yes. hello, Audrey Hepburn is Princess Anne and Gregory Peck. And it is the story of a princess who meets a commoner and can't be with him. And I do know that when I interviewed um, Gerald Gardner, who was the showrunner with Dee Caruso, mm -hmm. they would read all the scripts, of course. They would help plot ideas and then hand them out to their freelance writers. Um, and so Gerald's line was, look, when you do a show like this, you're always looking for what are the tropes? What are the old stories I'm going to rehash in this new world? And so I would not be shocked if, you know, they walked in the room and said, we're doing the Roman Holiday episode. Yeah. And speaking of the writing and production of the show, I know you pulled some interesting things together about how this episode came together. Oh, sure. Well, again, I don't know for sure. That's how Gerald addressed it. But we do know that Peter Meyerson and Bob Schlitt were assigned it. They were a team. Uh, they'd come out from New York, as most of the writers had, to work on the show. So it was their first time living in L.A. and working in Hollywood. Um, eventually, they're going to split up and Schlitt is going to go on into dramas. He's going to mm -hmm. work on the Mod Squad. So the Monkees is a nice segue into the hip young cops. Um, and then he's going to do Adam 12 and Lou Grant, which is one of my favorites, the spinoff of Mary Tyler Moore. And he'll eventually, as people age in the business, um, write a show that's for older people, which is Matlock. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he had a very long, very successful career. Um, Peter Meyerson did well as himself, but he stayed in comedies. He worked on a couple pilots with Treva Silverman, who's another Monkeys writer we'll talk about in later weeks. And um, he eventually co-created Welcome Back, Cotter which, gee whiz, is a show about four boys causing trouble with their <laughs> old teacher. So they both did quite well. This Monkeys was a very good starting off point. It's going to be an Emmy-winning show, so to have been on an Emmy-winning show is great for a writer's career. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we all know James Frawley goes on to do marvelous things, so what can yep. we say? <laughs> but in terms of production, uh, when I interviewed Peter Meyerson and I said, why was this show the first one aired as opposed to the pilot, he being a funny guy in his late 70s, said, because it was the best one. 
<laughs> and you do need a little bit of an ego to survive in this business. But in fact, if you look at the show, as we all have, it contains most all the elements that we define as part of the monkeys, mm-hmm. right? I mean, right down to ending with a little interview segment, which doesn't happen on every episode, but Absolutely. happened in this first one, mm-hmm. um, which is adorable and wonderful. And you see the it's before we had an era where you could see on YouTube a million behind the scenes on this show and behind yep. the scenes on this film. This was literally America's peak into actors sitting in director's chairs with their names on them and reading scripts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that's adorable. And, you know, it's the beginning of Mickey making jokes about I'm going to make the script better. And, you know, I understand how this works. And I've been in the business a long time. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really interesting. Um, you also get the jokes in that segment about Davy's long hair and that a boy will go home to set his hair. Yep. <laughs> that's an amazing thing to admit in that period. And that is part of that whole new thing for middle suburban Americans to look mm-hmm. at boys with long hair. Yep. So all of that is part of what will be we consider iconic to the show, as well as simple things like when they're running from the hotel, Peter grabs the towel and on the screen it writes, everybody does it. Yeah, that was so metatextuality. Exactly. Um, Metatextuality is right there from the beginning. It's letting us know that these characters and the show is going to speak to the audience as if they're hip enough to understand it. Very true. Very true. So I think that we see a lot of what will be the future monkeys in this episode, which makes it a perfect opening one. And we yep. get two romps. You have to have two romps and or it's not the monkeys. Yeah, the, the romps and the music are the second ingredient. I I think it it was the combination of good scripts and good plots, which, you know, maybe they weren't always the most original things in the universe. I kind of poked fun a little bit in my my summary, but they're classic and they include all those classic tropes because they work. Exactly. And they are a vehicle for getting us introduced to these characters. We know the story about the princess and the evil duke. There's no real, you know, suspense even if you're 10 years old as to how the story is going to end but it's it's the journey of how you get there and the second ingredient like you said of the secret sauce is <laughs> is the music um yes. there were two songs for this episode as mentioned this doesn't this just doesn't seem to be my day and take a giant step uh, this just doesn't seem to be my day. Was recorded over two sessions on July fifth and 9th of nineteen sixty six. Uh, Sandoval says Andrew Sandoval says about this tune. Let me grab his book real quick. <laughs> Closing out this session is a new and altogether more sophisticated voice and heart song called This Just Doesn't Seem to Be My Day. Modeled after such Eastern-influenced tracks as the Rolling Stones' Painted Black, the the tune shows the songwriting duo on the cutting edge of commercial pop. It also employs one of the duo's signature tricks, a frantic verse followed by a slowed-down chorus. And you know, now that he mentions that, I have seen that in a lot of their songs. True. Yeah, Boyce and Hart will later use this formula on some on songs like Sometimes She's a Little Girl, which I'm not familiar with, but I'll have to dig up. This just didn't, doesn't seem to be my day ended up on the Monkees' eponymous first album, released a few weeks after this episode aired at the beginning of October. Uh, Take a Giant Step was the other song in this episode, and it was one of the tunes attempted in the now infamous first recording uh, session of June 10th, 1966, when producer Snuff Garrett loved the band and the machine surrounding it so much he immediately quit. <laughs> ha! Yep. 
This Goffin and King classic was revisited on July 9th with Boyce and Hart producing and went on to be the B-side of Last Train to Clarksville, released on August 16th to build momentum for the band before the premiere of Royal Flush the following month. Um, Why these two songs were selected, I think, is pretty self-explanatory. Both are by probably the two most marketable songwriting teams on the project, one of whom was the Monkees' producers after Snuff Garrett's departure. Um, One song was the B-side of their number one debut single, and the other one was featured on the debut album. And they're they're sung by Davey and Mickey, the two most marketable voices in the Monkees. Exactly, for that period. Yeah, yeah. And so looking at the music, I, I was thinking about, the things that I think about, about music that's picked for particular monkeys episodes, aside from, you know, why they might be doing it for sort of marketing financial reasons. And, and the first question to my mind is, um, do they, do you think these songs fit the episode? Well, um, if you think about it, this just doesn't seem to be my day, of course, is adorable and is the perfect question because she's been tried to be killed twice. So it's not her day. So if you really think about the words, that makes sense. Um, And taking Giant Step, they are doing something huge. They are saving the day. Mm -hmm. It's what they're going to do as superheroes without capes, although the capes will come later. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think even if you were looking at it from the standpoint of do they match the plot? Well, they kind of do. Yeah, yeah. And I was I, I kind of landed in the same same point on that. They're not like on the nose in the way that say uh, all the king's horses is for, you know, don't look at gift horse in the mouth and that sort right. of thing. But I do think that in theme at least and also in mood, they sort of um fit the theme of the song especially this just doesn't seem to be my day because it <laughs> starts out not being princess Bettina's day but then you know Sig- sigmund gets gets his by the end too so <laughs> sure that's true <laughs> i think what you said about the fact that they're mickey and davy's voices is important it's not as if they made that decision right up front they did have everybody involved and yet they were the most marketable voices and it was recognized right up front. I mean, I know Don Kirshner gets a lot of bad rap for all the things we're annoyed with about him, mm-hmm. but he understood what sold yeah. um, and he helped move them forward. So we have to give him some credit for that. Absolutely. Because there are a lot of reasons and kind of a combination of factors that explain why we are still talking about these folks and this show decades later and i think that it is easy to discount or discard uh don kirshner's role because of what came later and i'm you know i i certainly like to rag on him as much as the next (laughs) you know as much as the next nez head but yeah (laughs) really we wouldn't have be having this this conversation about the guy and i think his contributions and bob and bert's are, are are something that 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 it's a little too easy to gloss over in this day where sort of the music and the turing act and sort of what the monkeys evolved into has become kind of more at the front forefront. That's true. I think when we get around to looking at the pilot, we'll certainly talk about Bob and Bert's influence and what they did and bringing it all together. In this episode, 
you know, as overall producers, they've stepped away the way television works and they've allowed Gerald and Dee to run the room, if you will, Mm -hmm. and to make a lot of the choices. And they've already thinking about what they're going to pitch for next year. That's how producers work. It's like, I have this, look at Shonda Rhimes. I have this show on the air. Now I have this show. I hand it off to an executive producer who will manage it. Then I invent the next one. It's what Stephen Cannell did when he had the A-team and Wise Guy and all those shows. So Bob and Bert are important in the beginning. And then they do sort of fade out of influence. Yeah, I think I think that's very true and a good way to put it. So, okay, I think we have provided everybody a good sort of introductory lecture in the Monkeys <laughs> 101 series. I hope that you all enjoy this and have had fun with this episode and with this concept. I know Roseanne and I had a ball putting this one together. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just going to say two things to wrap it out. Um, I want to remind everybody that Sarah started this with that concept of the female gaze and how important that was to the show. Mm -hmm. But it was important to think about looking at men as sex objects, um, which was a new kind of teen idol idea coming out of the 50s and rock and roll, um, different than the way we looked at Cary Grant and Gregory Peck back in the day. Um, And that's worth thinking about in the future. How much were they given reasons for Davey or someone else to take their shirt off? Yeah. So I think that's it for this time. Um, Next time we will be discussing Monkey See, Monkey Die. When an eccentric millionaire leaves the monkeys an unexpected legacy, the group must spend the night in the deceased haunted mansion. Uh, The writer of this is one of Roseanne's favorites, Treva Silverman, and directed once again by James Frawley. See, another trope, Haunted Mansion episode. Absolutely. Scooby-Doo, where are you? (laughs) Okay, so class is dismissed, and we will see you next time on Monkeys 101 right here on Zilch. Yay, do your homework, watch more episodes. Yep. Bye. Bye. Monkeys, monkeys, uh, the show's over, but we've got one problem. We're one minute short. Hi there, America. <laughs> Tell me, uh, Mike, what did you think of the show you just did? I thought it was one minute short. <laughs> well, Mickey, will you give me an intelligent hey, answer, man, please? I'm, this is I'm, very important. I'm reading next week's script. I'm going to try to save it. Peter, sure. what'd you think about it, hey? Well, I thought it was all right except for the dueling scene. What are you talking about? The fencing scene was great. None of you could have done it. Fencing scene? Great. Davy's, you know, short, and I could have done it better. He's always picking on me because I'm small. He's not short. Stand up, Davy, and show my tell you. I am standing up. Fellas, wait, wait, listen to me, all of you. What I want to know is one thing, seriously now. That's two what, things. What, what do you really want this show to do for you? <laughs> I want to go home. What are you going to do when you get home? I'm going to feed my dog. I'm going to take a bath. going to set my hair. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you ask stuff like this, really? I mean, uh, success and stuff like that. Why don't you ask us stuff like, uh, what time is it? What time is it, Mike? Uh, it's time to go, man. I'm yeah. <laughs> Dr. Roseanne Welch is a Mickey girl and the author of Why the Monkeys Matter, Teenagers, Television, and American Pop Culture. After a career of writing for television shows like Touched by an Angel, Picket Fences, and Beverly Hills 90210, Roseanne shifted gears and went into education. She now writes on film and television studies and teaches in the screenwriting program at Stevens College. Dr. Sarah Clark is an April conquest and proud of it. When not podcasting here at Zilch, a monkey's podcast, or writing at her blog, Fandom Lenses, her not terribly secret identity, she can be found leading a university library in the Philadelphia area. Sarah is convinced that her utter inability to understand Head when she was 11 sparked the intellectual curiosity that led her into academia. 
If only she'd known the guys themselves didn't understand head either. The Monkees, the complete series. All 58 episodes, newly remastered in stunning HD from the original negatives for the very first time. Plus the 1969 TV special 33 and a third revolutions per monkey. Bonus material includes commentaries from all four monkeys, original Kellogg's monkeys commercials, and more. The 1968 monkeys film, Head in HD with never-before-seen outtakes. Unique packaging including a 7-inch single featuring Star Collector back with Going Down in unique TV mono mixes. This collection is strictly limited to 10,000 individually numbered box sets. And once those are sold out, this edition and the bonus disc will never be available again. Everything you loved about the monkeys on TV, it's yours in high def on Blu-ray now. The Monkeys the Complete Series. Go to rhino.com or themonkeystore.warnermusic.com. The Monkeys the Complete TV Series on Blu-ray. New from Along Came Jones Media, When the World and I Were Young, snapshots from the collection of Davy Jones. Once upon a time in 1967, there were four boys who went on a mind-blowing adventure, and they captured it all on film. Things got surreal, but they got by with a little help from their friends. When the World and I Were Young, snapshots from the collection of Davy Jones. Available now, 72 pages, more than 80 full-color photographs, all from the private collection of Davy Jones. Featuring Mickey Dolenz, Michael Nesmith, Davy Jones, Peter Tork, Samantha Just, Henry Diltz, Jimi Hendrix, Stephen Stills, and more. When the World and I Were Young, snapshots from the collection of Davy Jones, the first project from Along Came Jones Media. Available now on Amazon.com. And as we go to press, check this out. From Davy Jones and Along Came Jones Media. New from Along Came Jones Media. When the World and I Were Young, Snapshots from the Collection of Davy Jones. Once upon a time in 1967, there were four boys who went on a mind-blowing adventure, and they captured it all on film. Things got surreal, but they got by with a little help from their friends. When the World and I Were Young, Snapshots from the Collection of Davy Jones. Available now, 72 pages, more than 80 full-color photographs, all from the private collection of Davy Jones. Featuring Mickey Dolenz, Michael Nesmith, Davy Jones, Peter Tork, Samantha Just, Henry Diltz, Jimi Hendrix, Stephen Stills, and more. When the World and I Were Young, snapshots from the collection of Davy Jones, the first project from Along Came Jones Media. Available now on Amazon.com. We want to thank you for listening to our first episode of Monkeys 101. Let us know what you think about it. Find us on Facebook, join us on Twitter, and keep the conversation going. We will see you on the next episode of Zilch, your podcast full of monkeys. Thank you for taking some time to monkey around with us today. Happy Global Monkeys Day! And that's our show. Zilch is an online, non-profit monkeys audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to the monkeys or any of their members past or present. We are not affiliated with Rhino or Ray Burke. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes and buy it. 
If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying always take some time to monkey around.